Welcome to VPG's Virtual Water Cooler Chat Podcast, where we share lessons and stories of women professionals to help empower other women and expand a greater circle of influence so we walk our journey with those who understand and appreciate us. Today, we'll talk with Kuei Huang about her path to becoming a patent attorney. The co-managing partner of Reichman, Jorgensen, Lehman, and Feldberg LLP in New York, Quay has over 20 years of experience representing clients in high-stakes patent infringement and licensing. Benchmark Litigation recognizes Quay as a national IP litigation star, and Profiles in Diversity Journal named her a 2022 Woman Worth Watching in STEM. Quay received her Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering from the University of California, Irvine, and her Master's in Electrical Engineering with an emphasis in semiconductor physics from the University of California, San Diego, where she was a Powell Fellow. She received her law degree from the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Hello, Quay. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on our virtual water cooler chat. And first of all, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, and thanks for having me on, Ashley. Okay, well, we're going to dive right in. How did you choose your path to become a patent attorney, and do you think you picked the right path? I'm going to answer that backwards. I definitely think I picked the right path, and that path I sort of backed into. I started out as an engineer, so I got my undergraduate degree um, in electrical engineering, and Back then, I really enjoyed being a student more than I enjoyed real life. And so the natural thing to do was apply for a PhD program, which I did. Um, And I was accepted into a PhD program on a fellowship. But it took me about six weeks to figure out that that was not what I wanted to do. It was a very, (laughs) it was a very confining sort of insular academic existence. So I withdrew from the PhD program got my master's degree because I still was not ready to be a full-fledged adult. Um, And then in the middle of my master's program, I applied for law school, but life interfered a little bit. My mom got sick. I was accepted to UCLA Law School. I had to withdraw my acceptance, came home, started work as an engineer while I was helping my mom recover, which very happily she did. And it wasn't until about three years into working as a full-time semiconductor engineer that I decided that wasn't what I wanted to do either. And so I sort of tumbled backwards into law again. And that's how I wound up here. Now, the reason why I say that I know I made the right decision is that in my years as an engineer, I was pretty bored, actually. There were times and days where I would literally fall asleep at work. It was just not a dynamic environment. I didn't even really know I needed until I was going through it. I have never fallen asleep (laughs) for the last 25 years, give or take. So I take that as a success. um, And I take that as an indication that I made the right choice. Now, can you share a little bit about your cultural background and what makes you quay? It's a loaded question. I'm an immigrant. I came here in the spring of 1975 from Vietnam. I'm the child of immigrants, so I guess I would be zero generation. Our parents, my sister and I, I have an older sister, were extremely grateful to be able to come to this country. We came from Vietnam um, at the very tail end of the war. 
And their emphasis and their wish and what they worked for was to ensure that uh, my sister and I would have opportunities that we otherwise would not have had if we had to stay in Vietnam. And their focus, which became our focus by default, was education, right? They viewed education as the path to any form of success. Um, That to them was paramount. And so part of our cultural upbringing was highly, highly focused on just becoming educated because once you had that in hand, the supposition was that you could then make whatever choices you wanted to make or needed to make because you had that foundation and that freedom that would give you more opportunity to pick and choose than you might otherwise have if you didn't. And and my sister and I both, sometimes we, we bridled against that a little bit, but by and large, we understood, I think, possibly because we were immigrants, we understood logically it made sense, culturally it fit in with where we came from, how our parents conducted themselves, and we embraced it ultimately. And I'm very happy and very glad we did. So I think that defined both of us, certainly me, quite a bit. Now, were you and your sister the first in your family that went to university? No, actually, my mom is also very highly educated. She was a pharmacologist back in Vietnam. Um, Her father was a doctor. And so, you know, we came from um, an educational background, which is, I think, what drove the strong ethic and belief that my both my parents, even my father was career army. So he did not come from higher education per se. He would probably argue with me a little bit that the army itself is a form of higher education. I mean, he was, like I said, in it since the age of 14. And so for him, that was a ticket to learning leadership, learning discipline. It was a ticket to travel. He traveled as part of his officer duties. Uh, And so both of them were educated in their own way, were expansive in the way that they thought. Mm -hmm. And I think both knew firsthand because they experienced it, that what they saw of the world, they viewed the key to unlocking opportunity as education. They dovetailed in that sense. And so for them, it's what they knew. Personally, it's what they saw professionally. And so that's where they encouraged us to go. I see. Well, I'm also, as you know, I am also um, a child immigrant. And my parents came when we were little and it was like in the 1980s. And my grandparents actually who, I mean, I really do have a lot of respect for the the older generation who actually first came over to the state not speaking a lick of English. And then my grandpa actually used to work at Chinese restaurant. And we sort of like, I don't know if I was put in the same situation. I'm not sure that I can actually have the perseverance to and go through all the hardship that they have gone through. So for that, really always very appreciative. My grandparents applied for my family and my cousin's family, you know, to come over in the 80s. And I was 
the very first one in both the maternal and paternal family that actually went to the Europe University. If I were in Hong Kong, I don't think that I would ever have the higher education because that's just not the social socioeconomic classes that you know my family was in. So coming to the United States actually had given us a lot of opportunity. Like you said, you know, they do believe, even though they did not get the education, they did everything they could to provide us the opportunity to go to university. And of course, I love going to school. So I went all the way to master. I didn't, I tried to, I thought that I was going to go do a PhD, but, you know, kind of have to support a life. You know, yeah. uh, outside, you cannot just be a perpetual student and, you know, unless you win the lottery, right? <laughs> and so I think with that, that's one of the reasons why I really do share your belief in terms of like, and a lot of immigrants dreams on how, when they come over and just make sure that the kids get the best opportunity to succeed and be professional so that they can support themselves and be happy by having a life that they didn't really quite have. So I do appreciate you sharing so much about that background. Now, how do you feel about being a PTAP practitioner? And where would you like to see women practitioners in patent litigation and PTAP in the future? Another loaded question. <laughs> Another loaded question, two-part question. Yes. So I uh, have a reg number. So coming out of law school, I actually took my patent bar exam my third year of law school, which I'm so glad I did because I'm not sure I would have had the fortitude to study for it while I was working full time. So I actually started out as a prosecutor uh, with the educational and industry background I had. Everyone I spoke to said, oh, you have to prosecute. There aren't too many people with electrical engineering degrees and law degrees you should prosecute. So silly me, I listened and I worked as a part-time prosecutor during law school. And then for the first full year plus some change out of law school, I did not like it. It was, um, it had a lot of the same earmarks that caused me to kind of grow tired of engineering isolating, relatively non-dynamic, repetitive. And so I sought out litigation, which I never expected to do. We were by nature and nurture nerds. Nerds don't argue. We don't debate people. You know, we just kind of put our heads down and work. But I found litigation to be so much more rewarding in the sense that it was a team sport right and again mind you we didn't play sports when we were younger we went to the library um, and so the notion of working in teams in a way that was just you know a lot of intellectual jousting and shared successes and shared misery I really enjoyed it and it, it in the realm of high-tech litigation, I still got to use the technical training and background that I had. So on the litigation side of things, it's great. And I do think, you know, I have to tell you, actually, I don't stop very often. 
to think of myself as a female litigator or a woman in litigation. I think that that is something that I have been incredibly fortunate not to have to think about. But I understand that it's not always that way. It's, in fact, probably pervasively not that way. And what I would like to see and what I try to remind myself of as well is familiarity breeds comfort. If people, whoever they may be, of whatever age or ethnicity or gender, if they can see something or be exposed to something that seems relatable, it becomes less scary, it becomes less foreboding. And so I think what I'd like to see is just more presence, I guess, by women in litigation, in IP litigation, in high-tech litigation, in PTAP practice. I think that simply by being visible and present, it will, in its own way, perhaps incrementally, but nevertheless, substantively, let whoever happens to be seeing it know that, oh, look, there's somebody who might look like me or who might have had an experience that I find relatable. And that seeps into the narrative, right? It allows people to just maybe put aside the constant imposter questions. Like, oh, no, I can't do that. I, I wouldn't know how to do that. Or, no, 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 that's not that's not what girls are supposed to do. Or that's not what you know women are supposed to do. I never thought that way. My parents never gave us reason to think that way. Even though I was one of like six girls in my undergrad engineering class, we never thought of ourselves that way. I think that's a luxury, but I think that it's also, I found comfort in having female classmates. I found none of my professors were women, by the way, except for one. <laughs> my, <laughs> my statistics professor was a woman and she was also a savant. She got her PhD at the age of 20. So she wow. was unusual in many ways, but everyone else were males. And um, I think just visibility is so important. And I realized I just skipped over your PTAP part. Should I talk about that? No, I think I think that's good because the way that how we organically flow this, you address my diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, questions already. So I think, I mean, I love your answers. And one of the things that as I'm sort of like talking to you, I really like your calm presence and even like your your you know, the, your voice and your tones is just so like calm. It's like water. And I really love that. And I don't, I wonder if you actually meditate. I have tried to meditate. I have failed at trying to meditate. Um, I appreciate being told that I'm calm because sometimes I'm most certainly not calm. So the service, right? <laughs> even on the surface I can okay. get a little hyper um, but I, I do find that ideas and, and thoughts get conveyed a little bit better when you're not splitting your brain in half trying to catch up with someone's words or you know sometimes when people are aggressive in their speech the reaction that it engenders is one that's defensive oh now I need to rise to the occasion or disagree with that or you know have a quick comeback I found 
I don't know necessarily that it's a byproduct of litigation. I think it's just a byproduct of talking to people, talking a little bit more slowly, enunciating, giving enough space for a conversation to be had. It's just a better style of communication. So I'm, I'm grateful that that's what you think. So that's nice to hear. <laughs> well, it's good that you give that impression. And um, the one thing that I do want to share, and when you said that it was a luxury that I'm really glad to hear that you did not really think of yourself in terms of just the gender of a medical practitioner. That really does mean that you are comfortable in the space that you're practicing in your firm and in uh, litigation, it might be really a luxury because I've been in litigation for like 20 plus years. And I was talking to someone yesterday, they were like, you cannot be more than 30. I'm like, ah, no, thanks, but not. <laughs> As it must be one of those, you know, genes or something like that. But I technically... If it were really, and my parents were very supportive, but there's the narrative that they were growing up in was not so conducive to, you know, me being feeling like that I'm equal. And so a lot of it is like, I'm a really outstanding paralegal and now a business owner and an entrepreneur, but there was still so many bad soundtrack to overcome. And one of the things that I was really grateful for is when a um, couple, you know, a couple important mentors in life. And one of the one of the professor was actually, he taught me not, nothing venture, nothing game. He was a Harvard Law professor and always tells me, oh, just, you know, when he asked me questions, and sometimes I don't know exactly where I was going. This is when I was an uh, undergraduate. And then when I went to grad school, he really did so much for me, even provided like housing for me when I was doing my master. Oh, wow. I know he um, he had to do a sabbatical at Saratoga Springs. And my parents had a Chinese restaurant, but they were like small Chinese restaurant. So it wasn't like really making a lot of money. And to it's hard enough for them to support like my tuition. But when I had to do my master's degree, my professor knew that I needed to have some solitude to write my thesis. So he asked me, would you like to house sit my place? I'm like, yeah, go back and ask my parents first because we live in a college town and you are a male professor. I don't think that is really, you know, proper. And he's a China scholar as well. So he really does understand the Chinese culture. And so I went back and asked my parents. My parents like, will he be there? I'm like, of course not. He's going to be in New York. And then so we asked a lot of questions. And eventually I decided that it was okay. So I paid for utilities. And he basically, it was his own scholarship to me. And when I had to defend my thesis, and I talk about this a little bit you know, in another podcast too. When I had to defend my thesis, he flew in to Lawrence on his own dime. And he prepped me. He's a lawyer. So he know how to do witness prep. So prepped me before the defense and made sure that I understand. The, he knew that I, I know the literature and I did my study on um, intercultural negotiation. So I was studying like William Urey, Roger Fisher, you know, getting to wow. yes, getting past no. I did assimilation and I had like really awesome scholars that supported me. And even then, one of the things that I didn't realize is that 
it was really his teaching of nothing venture, nothing gain. Because my parents would look like, don't question authority. So if I adopted that, I don't know how far I would go. But as I'm reflecting now, there were so many times that I'm just like, I read a book. And as I was writing my thesis, I wrote people. So I was looking at the letters. And apparently when I was doing my thesis, I wrote William Urey. He responded. Really? Yeah. Have a program on on negotiation. And that was like when I was young. And I also wrote Roger Fisher. He responded. I wrote Robert Manunkin. He responded. And I only, and I actually did a lot of things that I'm not quite sure that if I didn't have this professor that just encouraged me to think and not really worry about the limitations of what other people think. Now, I do worry about what other people think. That's just a byproduct of the culture. <laughs> You know, and that is something that I'm finding to be so beneficial now that I am out to be an entrepreneur because I don't have that box. I'm the only person, like I'm the owner, so I'm the only person that can create that box for me and my team. So I'm very cognizant of that. I just wanted to share every single time when I wanted to create that box for someone, I had to kind of step back and say, hmm, what would you, your professor actually say to you? So I just wanted to share that. Right. Well, having having worked with you and having been the recipient uh, invitations from you to do things like this, to do panels, I read your book. I'm so in awe and so happy for you, but also I have so much respect for you just pushing out there. I can't say that I would have attempted all the things that you did. Um, so congratulations and keep going for sure. But the the mentorship thing, the cheerleading thing, just having someone to provide a foundation that you can push off of, you know, because, you know, there's no bottom. Self-doubt and insecurity can be very loud, right? And it's hard to take that first step because In my mind, I think of it as footing. Like if you're about to jump off of something, if there's nothing solid beneath you, you're not going to jump very far. And you're probably not going to jump at all, right? And so folks like your professor, people like my parents, they provide that foundation. They provide that solidity to say, okay, use this as your rock. Now launch. And... I'm so glad that you had this person who really encouraged you to go. Um, it take it doesn't have to be, you know, rocket ship type thing. Like I'm the best in the world and I'm going to go do everything. That doesn't really resonate with me either. But what does resonate is say, look, what do you want? Try it. If you achieve it in one go, great. If it takes you six tries, fine. If you do it incrementally, okay. But what you don't do is you don't stew in self-doubt and inaction. Actually, I have plenty of self-doubts as I was starting, especially year one. Wasn't sure exactly what's going on. And I do support, you know, attorneys. So coming out of the law firm and um, the legal industry is very, I would have to say that, you know, in the law firms, in that particular culture, you're either attorney or your staff 
or non-attorneys, right? So sometimes it drives a little bit of an insecurity. It kind of fosters that insecure mindset. And um, so I'm very grateful that I have been blessed with working with some of the best practitioners and some of the, you know, the people that I used to work with were still friends and um, they still sort of mentor me through different, you know, challenges sometimes. And I do work with really awesome practitioners like you. And so I think that was pretty amazing. And a lot of it is that for the past three years, I think having interacted with people not only in the legal industry, but people outside the legal industry is what really game-changing for me. Right now, I seem relatively calm when I'm like talking to you, but I'm a very self-conscious person. Well, I have always been. And I was always like very self-conscious about my accent. And I worry, especially when people keep asking you to repeat yourself. And sometimes people do that for a purpose, but sometimes it could just be my accent. But like before we decided to start this podcast, which is kind of a huge endeavor, and I'm a very meticulous planner. So I would go like, okay, we're going to start on January 9th and every two weeks after this. So this is kind of how I go because in my mind, I have a schedule. It's already <laughs> two weeks after this and everything has to be on a spreadsheet and then we will just work with the team on that. But I've done about like six or seven interviews since December and uh, interviewing people and one of my team members interviewed me. And um, before that, I was like, oh, my God, how am I going to start this? And I did this by just going out there. And I had um, invited a brand strategist. His name is Sasha Strauss. And he actually is the sort of like a founder of uh, Innovation Protocol, uh, LA branding strategic firm, a consulting firm. I took his class. And after that, I stayed connected. And we just keep going back and forth on LinkedIn. And I, he asked me, hey, Ashley, what can I do to help you with your vision? I said, like, well, I kind of have to figure one out first. But we just keep con- stay connected. And I think it's probably my intellectual curiosity. And he always said that I'm just really kind. I'm like, do people not do this? And apparently not so much. So during college, I was prepped by Clyde. And I have to say that I'm going to have to tell Sasha this, but for this January podcast, the 2023 new endeavor. I was prepped by Sasha. He probably didn't know that he was prepping me, but I was like, you know what? I could find different people. So many people would want to have this interaction with Sasha, but I'm going to do this. And of course, on top of everything, this nothing mentioned, nothing gained. So I asked Caitlin, I said, can we do it LinkedIn Live and Facebook Live? We did. We did this wow. in November. And after that, I was like, well, I didn't tank. <laughs> so, okay. I can do this. Yeah. So that's how I put that... myself. To wrap this up, so I just wanted to kind of share this since, since we have this momentum. I'm glad um, you did. That's impressive. What are some of the key lessons learned you would like to share with our audience to close up our very fun chat? Well, I'll, I'll answer that by hooking into something you just said. A lot of people think being self-conscious is a bad thing. A lot of people think being self-aware is a good thing. They're the same thing. 
It just depends on how you view it, right? If you're sitting there thinking, oh, what does so-and-so think about me? How do I look? How do I sound? Do I need to change? Am I good enough? That's sort of um, self-conscious on the insecurity side of the coin. But if you look at it from a different vantage point, the exact same questions could be, how do I improve? How do I get better? What steps should I take to increase my advocacy? Right? Those are questions that are, they said, very similar in nature, but they're more a facet of being self-aware, being vulnerable, open to change, open to self-analysis. Um, they're not bad things, the qualities that you have. You know, your insecurities are very, very, very similar cousins to self-awareness. So I take it and I would move it in that direction. And that's what I would say to a lot of people. I say it to myself all the time. I have gobs of questions about what I can and cannot do. Should I even be here? Is this fully imposter syndrome? That question can only really be answered surprisingly by me. Thank you for sharing that. I've actually found myself really enjoying this whole interaction with different people. For example, I have um, interviewed the VP of Science at our National Foundation, and she's amazing, but she also said that, I'm not sure I could recommend other people for you. I said, why not you? Sometimes it's like, if we don't believe in ourselves, who else is going to believe us, right? And so I really want to thank you for accepting this challenge. And it was no, such a fun it. chat. I'm, I'm, I'm very honored and I enjoyed it a lot, Ashley, and I enjoy working with you and I hope that we continue to do more of the same. Yep. Thank you so much and uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Oh.